I'm JP Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We are back once again in the TARDIS for our 60th anniversary retrospective on Doctor Who. And we have reached the final Doctor of the classic series, the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy. What a road it's been so far going through the classic series. Yes, it's only been one adventure each, but it's been it's been a fun it's been a fun ride so far, you know, going through where this first few decades of, of Doctor Who as we head towards the 60th. Yeah, and this actually this episode that we're doing today is the start of the 25th season and the 25th year of Doctor Who. Now, while the 25th anniversary episode would be Silver Nemesis because 25 Silver Anniversary, haha. The one we are going to be talking about actually feels like an anniversary episode. That being Remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah, it it really is cool because they tie it in so heavily to where the Doctor started, including having the television broadcaster at one point as Ace walks past a TV tease that the BBC is about to try something new. And here is the very premiere episode of Doctor Click. <laughs> and someone turns off the... The TV. The television, yeah. So, uh, you know, this episode starts at the at the junkyard, at Coal Hill School. At I mean, we are back in the places we were at in episode one. Yeah, but before we get into that fully, we do need to pick up where we left off, which was with Sixth Doctor, Colin Baker. As we've discussed in the last episode, Colin Baker was not very well loved by the audience at this point. Kind of is now, but he was not then. Not even was very well liked within the BBC hierarchy or even the writers of the show. Really, the only person who wanted Colin Baker was John Nathan Turner, who was still the showrunner as of at, at uh, during this this era of the of Doctor Who that we're going to be talking about. So as Colin Baker is exiting the show, we get the head of the BBC, Michael Grade, who we talked about last time, trying to figure out what we're going to do with this show. So he decided to get in touch with a person that was responsible for the very early success of Doctor Who, Sidney Newman. Well, yeah, Sidney Newman is now back in back in play. Yeah. And, and Sidney Newman had come up with a few ideas. The first idea he had was to bring back Patrick Troughton to do Doctor Who for a season to get the audience back and to, you know, uh, regenerate into a new Doctor at the end. I mean, 
what kind of crazy idea is that? What kind yeah, of idea? I don't think that will work. I mean, bringing back a previous actor who played the doctor just to stir up new excitement in, into the show before we hand it off to a new guy? I mean, I mean... But yeah, it'll never work. Uh, it'll never work. It'll never work. Another idea that uh, Newman had was to do something so drastic, something that no one would ever think would ha no one would even conceive. It would be crazy. Let's have the doctor be a woman. I mean, who would ever think of Doctor Who being a woman? That's crazy, right? I like that idea better, but you'd have to have somebody really good in charge. Yeah, you would need you would need a good writing team to write the doctor as a woman. Yeah. Maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about that later. So the idea that Sidney Newman had was Joanna Lumley as the doctor. Now Joanna Lumley was well known from the BBC audiences, but really would not get her break in the United States until the early 90s when her show Absolutely Fabulous would air on Comedy Central. Oh, the early yeah. days of Comedy Central, where it was just MST3K, absolutely fabulous, and whose line is it anyway? Those were the days. Those were the days. The golden era of Comedy Central. The, jo the interesting Joanna thing is, though, right. is that Joanna Lumley would get sort of a shot at being the Doctor once. I was going to bring that up. She did play. Yeah. She would play... The 13th Doctor in the parody special, The Curse of Fatal Death. The 13th Doctor as a woman. Oh, who would ever think of that? Yeah, interestingly, a lot of, uh, in that special, a lot of people got to be the Doctor for a very short amount of time. Uh, including Hugh Grant for a few seconds, and, uh, Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant, our good old friend, classic Loki there. Um, Rowan Atkinson, of course. Rowan Atkinson getting to, to play the Doctor there. Um, a, a few really interesting actors kind of uh, went through, and that sketch was written by someone who would go on to interestingly be a Doctor Who showrunner. <laughs> that was actually the first Doctor Who thing he ever wrote. Yeah, um, so it's interesting that all of these ideas that were actually present in canonical Doctor Who behind the scenes, he he was such a fanboy that he knew them well enough to put them in these silly little uh, comic relief specials. Yeah, um, but eventually but yeah. after... But eventually, after a long audition process, we end up with our seventh doctor, Sylvester McCoy. And Sylvester McCoy, his whole past is kind of weird because he started out in a performance troupe, the Ken Campbell Road Show, where he would be like a stuntman. And there is a video online, if you can find it, of Sylvester McCoy hammering a nail up his nose and stuffing ferrets down his trousers. Fortunately, the sport of ferret trousering or whatever they called it like and yes that was a legitimate sport in europe at one point and i hate to say that um has since been banned for animal cruelty and uh thank them for it but uh yeah that would that was actually a a, a sport 
if you can believe it or not, at the time he did it. So, yeah, that wasn't just a comedy bit. That was like a actual thing people did. And Thank you for banning it, England. You're awesome. A lot of his clowning and comedy bits would come into play in the show. We, uh, he does like in in the episode we're talking about. He does a sleight of hand card trick, or kind of a a uh, bumbling man kind of clownish persona, and and uh, just sleight of hand magic and just clown mannerisms into distract. Uh, villains and such so he he would take from his own experience and put that into the doctor the hat the famous hat that the seventh doctor sylvester mccoy wears is actually sylvester mccoy's legit hat he wore that hat to his audition they loved it it stuck and he still owns that hat so when you see him in public with the hat it's actually his hat yeah never 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 steal sylvester mccoy's hat <laughs> so yeah story so let's get into the story where we were um so after his trial of a time lord uh the sixth doctor and new companion mel bush go off into the unknown and is eventually attacked by the renegade time lord the ronnie which causes the sixth doctor to tumble into his tardis bashing his head onto the console and at this point, as we've mentioned last time, Colin Baker did not return for this episode. So you get Sylvester McCoy in a really crappy blonde curly wig with a filter over his face because you can't tell it's not Colin Baker. And then he, then he regenerates into Sylvester McCoy. We get one more season with Mel before she leaves. In the final, se- in the final story of season 24, Dragonfire, we are introduced to a brand new companion, a companion unlike any companion we've had previously, a young, tomboyish, very feisty young woman, Dorothy McShane, but you can call her Ace. Yeah, Ace is awesome. There, There's a reason why a lot of women love Ace, because... She was the the first one of the women companions that were written to be more independent from the Doctor. Um, which is not to diss Sarah Jane, because Sarah Jane was also written to be a little more feminist. But Ace was, I think the quote about Ace was, fighter not screamer. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, it really comes in because, you know, she makes her own explosives. She carries a baseball bat everywhere. <laughs> she's, you know, she's got she's, the bomber jacket, you know. She is the representation of the 80s teenager. Yeah, that, she's that. very rock and roll. She's very, you know. Ace is is really what, I mean, I I hesitate to say it, but this is kind of what millennial girls grew up wanting to be like, you know? Yeah. Because this is the the 80s girl. I mean, she is the 80s companion, you know? This is the the end of the classic series, so we're in the, the mid to late 80s here. Yeah, and at this point, Doctor Who has some really stiff competition because this is a, this is a point where 
you and I are existing in the world. And uh, I and old enough to remember it. (laughs) Yes. So, like, I'm not watching Doctor Who because I didn't know what Doctor Who was. But I'm watching very similar shows. I'm watching Quantum Leap. I'm watching Star Trek The Next Generation. And, like, when when that's your competition, you better have a good show to counteract it. Yeah, I mean, Red Dwarf is already on at this point in the UK. And, you know, Ace is kind of a smart version of Lister from Mm -hmm. Red Dwarf. You know, she dresses very similarly and she's got a very similar attitude, but she's just like very witty and very, you know, but she's got that same kind of attitude. It's a it's a very similar vibe that's that's kind of where the the feeling was i think in in the uk at the time mm-hmm. among the youths but you you did have if you were a sci-fi nerd and of course england got more american tv than we got british tv at the time they were getting more you know, Next Generation and Quantum Leap and stuff, then we were getting Red Dwarf and Doctor Who. You know, you were having to compete with a really interesting revival of television sci-fi, and Doctor Who was starting to look a little dated among sci-fi nerds, even in England, who loved the show as an institution. Yeah. And that was uh, that was Grade's issue that Doctor Who looked dated. That it just that it may have been past its prime. And as as I said, there was no intention of putting any more money into this show. That would have been nice, but yeah, this is why Michael Grade is considered the man to kill Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, I was watching this episode in particular, and I was looking at it, and I was thinking, you know. They did Red Dwarf at the same time, you know, roughly the the same kind of years, those early seasons of Red Dwarf, and the these episodes of of Doctor Who, and I'm looking at some of the space scenes because we do get like the Dalek spaceships around Earth and stuff in this, and I'm looking at the special effects for Doctor Who, and I'm thinking of. Red Dwarf in the same context, and they're both made by the BBC at this point. And I'm thinking, if you look at the Red Dwarf stuff today, and you look at this episode of Doctor Who, and you compare what the special effects of spaceships out in space look like in both of these shows, one looks like original Battlestar Galactica, which was like 10 years earlier in the U.S. on network TV. And one looks like not quite the amount of money that was being thrown at Next Generation, but closer to that. Mm. And they're both made by the same entity at the same time. You can tell that the that, that people at the BBC was definitely favoring one show over the other, though. Yeah, I mean, you can just tell that they're not putting as much love and money <laughs> into Doctor Who at the time uh, by the way they're they're doing it. Because I'm like, I love both of these shows, and I know 
what the productions of both of these shows look like. And they're both getting a similar runtime and they're both getting a reasonably similar audience. Red Dwarf was always for slightly older audiences. But yeah, just the amount of like budget and leeway and stuff that's going into one versus the other, you're like, okay, yeah, this is this is not tracking. Um so yeah, I felt I felt bad for him because I, I was like, well, no wonder it's struggling at this point because you're not really giving him the resources. Even McCoy would say that they had some good scripts, but they just were never allotted the time to refine the scripts and refine the filming. They just were not given the time because BBC was putting them under such sh- short-term turnaround to get these episodes done. Now, granted, that was a lot of the BBC shows, but it seemed where they were putting the more pressure on Doctor Who for that. Honestly, this is a banger of a script, this episode. And I think because of budget restrictions, they had to pad some of the less interesting parts of the episode and speed up some of the more interesting parts of the episode because of what they could spend time filming with the cast and the special effects and the makeup budget and stuff. This episode famously went over budget to the point where they fired the director. The director's only other Doctor Who role would be directing Time and the Ronnie. Yeah, but I'm thinking of if they did this same script premise in the rebooted show and they did it with Eccleston or Tennant, this would go down as one of the most gripping two-parter episodes in the new the new reboot. I can definitely see Tenet, because especially at the end of the episode, with McCoy having that cold stare towards Davros. Yeah, and this, to me, I mean, the script is solid, the concept is solid, and I think where it fails if it fails and i'm not sure it does but i think where it might be at fault at all is that they had to pad the runtime a little too much like you know we can't afford to do some of the more gripping stuff so let's pad it out with the cheaper two film stuff if this was a three-parter and not a four-parter would it have been a little bit more tightened up, you think? Possibly so. But I really do think that where you would have to change it would have to be maybe moving the human element of the drama a little forefront, maybe. Mm. Uh, It might need a little bit of script work to go okay we can't afford to show the Daleks or Davros as much so we need to set up the Davros reveal a little bit more the doctor's final plan might need to come out um, and be foreshadowed a little more because I feel that's one of the one of the the kind of 
again, I don't want to say failings because this is one of the better episodes of the classic series, I feel. This a is lot. a really, really good episode. Mm-hmm. But of, uh, his his big final plan kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it, I I feel that I feel that there's not enough foreshadowing in that you can't really see the doctor thinking and planning it through, and I think that's when the doctor works best is either that you can see him planning. Or that you have that moment at the end of the episode where he's backed into a corner and he goes like, uh, what do I do? And it's that MacGyver moment of, I have chewing gum and two paper clips. What do I do with it? Aha! You know. We get that one moment in at the end of, I believe it's episode two, where he looks at the camera and says, I may have miscalculated. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's those are always good moments, but it has to be one or the other. It has to either be the slow burn, or you have to see the solution come to the doctor all in that one moment. You need to figure it out the same time the doctor does. Yeah. So either you have to be certain that even though you don't know what the doctor's up to, he has a plan and you have to trust him, or you have to have that moment of, I'm just as brilliant as the doctor. I figured it out 0.3 seconds before the doctor said the solution on screen. Okay? Either of those can work for the audience. Trust in the doctor, the doctor will get us out of this, or see, you're just as smart as the doctor, you know. Mm-hmm. But in this one, it's kind of a deus ex omega, you know? It's just like, I have this MacGuffin. Oh, look, the MacGuffin does a thing we didn't know it could do. Because everybody's just after this hand of omega which weirdly only the daleks can say correctly and yeah shut up england i'm saying you can't say that word right oh we're not going um, with omega huh i'm not going with omega <laughs> it's just it's just wrong i know i'm a linguist and i'm not a prescriptivist but for this one i'm going to be a prescriptivist it's it's omega it's not omega shut up um but yeah um team team dalek on on the pronunciation of that one but uh yeah so th- they spend the whole the whole episode looking for the hand of omega which apparently the doctor brought with him on his first trip to earth when it was him and susan and they buried it in the junkyard or something yeah before we really get into it i want to make one more mention before we really get into this episode oh, go ahead this episode was the first of what fans have called the Cartmel Master Plan. The we have a new script writer and his he, we have a new script editor for the show, Andrew Cartmel, and he wanted to bring more of the mystery back to the Doctor. And he had this. It really wasn't a master plan like the fans like to call it. It's more of a mood. Like, like let's make him a little bit more skeevy, a little bit more m- mysterious, a little bit more manipulative. And that starts here with him having the hand of Omega, this tool that, as he says in later in the episode, 
was one of the things that they used to create time travel. This was how the the, the Time Lords discovered time travel. Omega was the one that discovered time travel for the Time Lords. You see, according to the lore, there are three big pillars of Time Lord society. You have Omega, who created time travel. You have the Other, who created regeneration. And you have Rassilon, who took the credit. Oh, Rassilon. Rassilon was a dick. I'm just... Rassilon was... I think that's probably why Time Lords are all dicks, except for the Doctor. Because, like... Rassilon was such a douchebag. So if your entire society is built on, like, worshipping this one dude as your, like, founding father or whatever, it's no wonder you have an entire society of douchebags except for, like, the one dude who ran away. I mean, Timothy Dalton played him perfectly when he he did play Rassilon. Oh, yeah, no, Timothy Dalton nailed that part. It was like, who are we going to get to play the universe's biggest douchebag? Timothy Dalton. Yep, that makes sense. So the idea was, and we kind of get the hint at it in this episode, the Doctor is a lot older than he claims. Something that does come back later in the series, but we'll talk about that when we get there. The, uh, this, he took, this concept really goes back to the fourth Doctor episode, The Brain of Morbius, where we see that the Doctor may have more lives than he's telling us. And it comes back in here. The implication that the Doctor might be the the other. That the Time Lord known as the other is the Doctor. Either he has aged so long, lived so long, that he's regenerated into the character we know as the Doctor, or he was resurrected the other died and was resurrected and became the doctor we know the time lords can resurrect they would resurrect the master and rassilon to be in the time war later on so resurrection is not you know new to the time lords so that was the idea that and even the implication that the doctor was not just a mere time lord more than a time lord Someone tell Chris Chibnall he got the wrong idea from this. Oh, oh, there's a lot I would like to tell Chris Chibnall. That is way down on my list. Although, if we go by that, that would make the other tech tune, and I really don't want to talk about that right now. (sighs) Because we're talking about the other being the one that invented regeneration. It could be either or. There's even implications before before that era even happened that the Doctor might not be a Time Lord at all. He might be from another reality. Again, Chris Chibnall got the wrong idea from all of that. (laughs) But we will talk about that era when we get to that era. We are in the Seventh Doctor era now. The end of the John Nathan Turner era. Moving swiftly back to this episode. The, the, I like I like the implication that the doctor took more than Susan and a TARDIS when he left Gallifrey. Yeah. 
Can you imagine? That, that is you, what I like about this episode. That that there's the the idea that maybe there are trinkets that were important to Gallifrey that the doctor took. Yeah, you don't deserve this. I'm taking it. Can you imagine being Susan? You're you're with your grandfather. Grandfather, what are we doing? We're stealing a TARDIS. Why are we stealing a TARDIS? Shut up, kid. This casket's right behind you. Why is we have why are we taking a casket with us, grandfather? <laughs> Don't why ask we... too many questions, kid. I kind of like the idea of the doctor and Susan being very pinky in the brain about this. Like, what are we doing today, grandfather? Same thing we do every day, Susan. We upend Time Lord society. It's <laughs> just such a great idea. Um, and I can see the doctor keeping Susan in the dark of what this thing is and what it's for. Well, yeah, and the idea in the in the kind of greater lore is that this Hand of Omega is the way time travel is powered in Time Lord society. Which is that it causes stars to go supernova, and that is what powers the internal eye of infinity or whatever inside the, the eye of harmony. Yeah, the eye of harmony. Yeah, yeah the a, eye of harmony. The eye of harmony is a star that's got supernova. That was what powers the TARDIS. Sorry, I've been watching a lot of MCU recently. Can you tell? Um, <laughs> I get my multiverses mixed up. Um, the uh, the thing about it, though, is that we don't really, in this episode, get a lot of foreknowledge of kind of what it's used for and what it does. Until the big reveal of what the Doctor does with it at the end of the episode. So the audience doesn't really have a lot of time to get there on their own. Mm. Which is a problem. Because it's good to make the Doctor mysterious. And it's good to have twists, but the the thing about a mystery and the thing about a twist is that you have to be able to look, if you don't see it coming, you have to be able to look back afterwards and go, oh yes, the clues were all there, I just didn't put them together before the reveal. Or you have to be able to put them together just seconds before the reveal. And some people will be able to put them together much earlier. And that's fine. If you've done your writing well, some people will be able to see where you're going with that. That's not a failure of writing. I'm going to say that again. It is not a failure of writing if people can see the plot coming sometimes. Are you talking to the people, of the, the creators of Lost? <laughs> I am talking to the creators of anything. Okay? But yes, I, I mean, also the creators of Lost. It's If somebody sees your thing coming, it's, it's okay sometimes. Okay? It just means that you've 
put your foreshadowing in place correctly. All right? It's fine. It's fine. Okay? If nobody sees the, the twist coming, usually that's a bad thing. It means you didn't put your foreshadowing correctly. There should at least be one or two people in the audience that went, yeah, I, I put that together. Because like, some people are very good at reading foreshadowing, and some people will miss things along the way. That's just how literacy works. You know, I mean, all we get is the doctor takes Ace's bat, puts it in the hand of Omega, and now it's supercharged. Yeah, that's kind of the only thing is that there's some great power in there, but that power could be anything. It doesn't really tell us anything other than this is a MacGuffin of some great power. And there is a hint that it has something to do with time travel but we don't actually know that it has the power to make stars go supernova until the end of the episode and then you're like oh okay i guess it can do that neat you know yeah (sighs) it would it would kind of you know if, if there was something about you know be careful with that if it went off here it could cause great destruction or something or you know be careful because the the wrong move it would be like 20,000 nuclear bombs all at once or something you know i mean if it had given any hint that that it was like an explosive power or an implosive power or something at least you would be like, oh, okay, I can see how it would make a star go supernova by the end of it, you know? Mm-hmm. There would have been at least some little crumb. Um, but I want to talk about the, the more interesting plot, which is that we get the idea uh, that is still going to this day of internal Dalek conflict. Yeah, Dalek purity versus Dalek purity. Which Daleks are the real Daleks? We how many how many episodes of the Doctor Who have we seen, which is just a Dalek civil war try, of each faction figuring that they are the true Daleks? I mean, I'm pretty sure the Thirteenth Doctor had two of them. Oh yeah, I mean this this is. You know, uh, a continuing theme. Um, It was brought back with David Tennant. Um, Did the Ninth Doctor have one? I can't remember. It was just the... The one Dalek episode? It was the the, the one pure Dalek in, in the one episode, and then... Uh, when the Emperor Dalek made Daleks out of human cells in in that final episode. Yeah, but I, but I mean the the Daleks in New York is all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything, and then it it keeps going. You know, anytime the the Daleks try to show back up and be like, you know, hey, it's evolve or die. 
there's always that one group of Daleks that's like, if you evolve, then we will kill you, you know. Yeah, if we evolve, we wouldn't be Daleks anymore. And this is kind of where it it starts, really. Mm-hmm. Because so we, we've got that Imperial Daleks versus the Renegade Daleks. Renegade Daleks who have started augmenting themselves with bits of technology on their organic parts. So the Imperial Daleks, which we find out eventually are led by Davros himself, who, you know, we thought was dead, um, are like, no, 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 if you're cybernetic Daleks, then you're not pure Daleks. And I, uh, yeah, and it's, you know, well, in order to do, you know, to do this, we have to change, we have to become better, and, you know, yeah. Typical, I mean, right now, now, in 2023, this is a trope within Doctor Who of Daleks fighting Daleks, but, yeah, back then, that was, yeah, I'm pretty sure this was one of the first, if not the first. Well, and, I kind of, uh, I kind of want to talk about why this was an important episode, given the context of what was going on in the UK at the time it was made. Right. Because this is really interesting in the the sense of. When when it was made and what was what was going on because part of Ace's backstory is that at one point in her childhood her friend was the target of a bomb in her flat. Like, somebody threw Molotov cocktails into her flat. Because... I think I I I read that story. I think it was because he was gay? No, no, no. It was was a girl, and um, it was a a racial thing. Ah, okay. That does fit into this episode. Because in the 80s, in the UK, during the Thatcher years... They were having a massive problem with a rise in neo-Nazi groups. And a very big problem with, like, keep England racially pure and kick all the immigrants out. Something that persisted uh, <laughs> in, the U- in the UK, which led to Brexit. Well, I mean, it... it kind of died down and went under underground for a while but when you listen to music from the time and you hear that like UK punk scene and you get like you know Nazi punks that F off and stuff you know yeah um I'm I'm trying to keep it kid friendly here uh for those who listen with their little ones but you know um there's a big like anti-fascist, you know, thing there in British music in the 80s, and there's a big, you know, and 
there is a through line in this story where Ace meets a really cute boy and they hit it off. And then she finds out he's a member of a fascist group that happens to be passing information on to the Daleks. Yeah. And he says words to her like, well, you've got to keep things safe for your own kind. You've got to keep the, you know, and he's saying words that are being put forth by the groups that were being prominent in the headlines in the UK when these episodes were made. So these are things that people who would be watching these episodes at the time they were first airing would be hearing and kids about Ace's age would be hearing because this is the target age group that those groups were recruiting from. Yeah. He's like, yeah, these you get- like, you know, early teen ages. They are kind of hitting those particular points in there is that while it doesn't specifically beat you over the head with it, like Ace with a baseball bat, (laughs) um, this would have immediately been very much striking home to the kids watching Doctor Who at the time because that's kind of what they were going through. Um, So it's... I found it very interesting um, watching it and going like, oh yeah, that's, that's right. This was what was, what was happening at the time. Um, And they're, they're not really subtle about it. I mean, the Imperial Daleks are all white in their casing. Yeah. You know? Um, And the Renegade Daleks are the classic Daleks. From yeah. the original serial. That was, yeah, that they've, was a, they've that got was a, nice... a classic look, and then the Imperial Daleks are a pure white casing on there. So, not yeah. really subtle. Or Oh yeah, we got an Ace doesn't always call him the Doctor. She calls him Professor, much to his own chagrin. And she knows it bothers him, which is why she continues to call him Professor. Well, in Yeah, a way, that, in is, a... that is true. In a way, she kind of he kind of is her professor. He is her teacher. Because she is a young woman. He's trying to teach her life lessons through these time travel adventures. But in, in, in this case, we have Mike, the soldier boy that Ace has a crush on, who is very much a nationalist. We have his boss, Radcliffe, who, as he's talking to, to one of the Daleks, he mentions how... How his country fought for the wrong side in the war. So yeah, he's straight up, you know, again, that would be World War II. Yeah. So y- you know what side he's fighting for. And so yeah, that's that's definitely fashy. And of all things, Mike's mother runs a boarding house that Ace stays at throughout most of the most of this uh story. And the shocked look on her face when she sees the sign in the window that says no coloreds. Yeah. I mean, also, it's the 60s. Yeah. I mean, in in the UK, of course, but yeah. 
Yeah. It's it's another it's another um it's another tip off that uh of the type of people they are. Yeah. And and, and no amount of Elvis and Beatles songs in the background is gonna cover that up. Though I'm surprised that they that this episode is able to keep those songs in the episode. Given how other TV shows that use those songs have to kind of dub them over or edit them out for various releases, yeah. But yeah, the I, but again, I will say you know the use of the '60s music in certain areas to set the mood of this being in the '60s, and yeah, the the the, the no colored stuff and yeah does also set the mood for this being in the '60s. We get another interesting little uh, callback to the first episode because we have the joke which we discussed in the when we talked about the first episode where Susan says, um, oh, I'm sorry, I thought we were on the decimal system when they discuss money. Which we talked about how that was marking her as out of touch with, you know, reality somehow. Um, but in about 10 years, Britain would be on the decimal system uh, with their money. And here we get. Ace, who is from the future, going back to the 60s, and she doesn't know how to count the money. The doctor gives her money, and she is asking Mike, so like, how many shillings to a crown, and a a crown is what, and what is a half of a what you know like she's super confused about the old system of money because she wasn't raised with it yeah she it's was born nice after the yeah so it's it's a really cute callback of the the difference between you know the the time lord susan who at least understands the concept she just got the the date wrong of the switch over and ace who has never been raised in the system that used the old monetary system. As in most of these Dalek on Earth stories, there's always both willing and unwilling human accomplices. The renegade Daleks have their human accomplices in Radcliffe and Mike and a child. So the so yeah, the doc, the, the doctor explains that the since Daleks think in pure logic. They they need someone with a creative mind to think of new strategies. So they take a child from the school and they put her into a Dalek computer and have the computer using the imagination of a child to think up new strategies. And this child also runs around the school kind of spying on the Imperials and spying on the Doctor with this very disturbing-sounding children's music around her every time she's on screen. Yeah, I mean, at least I I like the fact that they understand that there is nothing creepier than a child running around 
singing nursery rhymes. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever seen any horror movie, you know. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. <laughs> yeah. And on the Imperial Dalek side, we get the school's headmaster who has a chip in his neck and he kind of rubs it whenever the Imperial Daleks are giving him an order. And, you know, eventually, since these two Dalek factions are fighting, we also get the humans on each side fighting with with the headmaster jumping on Mike saying, where, where are the renegades? Where are the renegades at? I don't know. I don't work for the renegade. I don't know what a renegade Dalek is. But it, 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 the, the idea of Nazi sympathizers working with an allegory for Nazis works. Yeah, the interesting thing is, is that the only one who seems to be working with the Daleks willingly is Ratcliffe. For some reason, Ratcliffe seems like totally down with the the Daleks because they represent what he, his ideal like like I said he felt that England fought on the wrong side of the war and with with working with the Daleks he feels he's on the right side of the war he seems to just be a guy who wants to follow anything he sees as strong, mm. you know? Mm. Um, we don't really find out too much about him in the, in the, uh, as it, it stands. They go into a lot of it in the, the books and stuff. Cause like this, this episode was made into like a novel and and all that kind of stuff. So you get like his whole uh, yeah, story this is, this and everything, one, you know. Yeah, this is one of those episodes that spin-off media loves. So like they've even done spin-off stories of the care of the non-doctor characters in this episode, like soldiers and everything gets spin-off stories because it, it the rule of Doctor Who expanded media, every episode deserves a sequel, whether it needed one or not. <laughs> Oh yeah, like there's a book about what happens to the little girl. Yeah. That you know got taken by the do uh, the Daleks and everything. But um the the thing is is that he seems to be the only one in the story who actually knows he's working for the Daleks and is willingly working for the Daleks because when Ace confronts Mike about it she discovers that he's the one who passed on information to the Daleks that ended up messing up the doctor's plan um, earlier in one of the episodes. And she, uh, she starts screaming at him, you're a grass, you're a grass, which is a term I only know because, uh, my father is a huge fan of uh, British mystery police procedural dramas. <laughs> and that's a thing, that's a term that gets used all the time in those. And it just means an informant. Uh, so if you've ever watched this episode and you're like, what is she screaming at him? Uh, it's, it's a slang term for an informant. 
Um, so she's calling him a snitch. Mm. But um, the the thing is, is that when she says that, he's like, I didn't know it was the Daleks. I'm like friends with a guy named Mr. Ratcliffe. He's really cool. And we're part of this thing called the Association, which turns out to be a fascist organization. And he's like, I just did him a favor. And I didn't know that he was working for the Daleks, which appears to be true. And I love her response to it. Do me a favor and go drown yourself. Oh, yeah, which is the exact thing you should say when you find out somebody is a fascist. <laughs> um, but the the thing is, is that you find out later he was telling the truth because he later does what he can to kind of stop things. He was like, OK, you know, I'm a fascist, but I have my limits, you know, I'm an earth um, fascist, damn it. <laughs> yeah, I'm an earth fascist, humans only and only certain types of humans. Um, but the, uh, the thing is, is that, so there's this one guy that's like, okay, Daleks, yeah, I'm down with that. And everybody else seems to have been compelled in some way to have been part of this. But the, the one guy has a chip in his head, in his head and the headmaster of the school. Yeah, the headmaster of the school, and then Mike just was doing a favor for the head of his fascist organization, and the little girl, we don't know exactly how they're controlling her, but they've enhanced her in some way, because she shoots lightning out of her hands, and she's never in control of her own whatever, and when the Daleks get blown up at the end of the episode, she immediately like breaks down crying, and she's just a normal little girl after that. I want to backtrack one moment before we give it to get into the rest here. This is the first instance of CG animation used in Doctor Who. The opening is pure 1980 CG. Probably hasn't aged very well, but it is the first use of CG in Doctor Who. I'm probably sure that's where most of the budget went. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and the cool little transmat effect where you can see the the inner organic Dalek. <laughs> Dalek blob, as Ace calls it, coming in first in the little transporter, and then the mechanical shell forming around it and stuff. That that it's actually for 1980s Doctor Who, not a bad effect. Um, but yeah, the, we have to talk about the major reason we wanted to do this episode. So yeah, Ace has left the boarding house after seeing the no colored sign and she decides to do some snooping of her own at the school and mostly because, uh, the doctor has left her boom box at the school and she went to go back and go back and get it because 1980s boombox in 1960s London, as the doctor says, very anachronistic. So she goes back to get her her boombox. The Imperial Daleks come in, and of course, there's the famous scene. You probably know you might you might not know that it's from this episode, but you've probably seen it online, where the Dalek enters the schoolroom and saying, "Small human, female detected." Who are you 
colon small and she just goes to town on this dialect with the baseball bat that is really why we wanted to use this this episode a scene that is so famous that they had to recreate it when she came back in power of the doctor last year yeah I mean, of all the amazing and badass scenes in Doctor Who, none is as bad of ass as Ace just going to town on a Dalek with a baseball bat. There is a scene, there's a thing about this um, that I don't know if it's if it's true. Now, granted, the scene itself is like one of Sophie's favorite scenes but um there was always something that i had heard that she got a little too overzealous with the swinging in that they had a a dummy dalek that was built just for her to bash and sophie didn't know that so when she time to do the hit she started hitting the actual movable prop dalek before they could tell her to cut. Oh no. That is the story I've always heard. I don't know if it's true. But that's the story that I heard. That she actually did damage to one of the Dalek props. Because she got a little overzealous in, in her hitting. And rather than waiting for the dummy Dalek prop. For, them to, for her to bash. Yeah. Never damage your hero prop. Uh, <laughs> bad idea. Little, I mean, it's little... it's happened. I mean, if you go to some of the older episodes, you can, like, see duct tape on some of the Daleks' talks back in the, you know, fifth and sixth Doctor eras. Yeah. And then d- d- do, do your best to not damage the hero props. The, um... The cool thing about it, though, is that it's not just that one Dalek she takes out. She takes out, like, three Daleks with that baseball bat. Like, the... the all the the gifts and clips you see are of her taking out that one in the chemistry room um there but that scene continues and she just keeps going down the hallway just being like okay I'm on a roll and then with an anti-tank a- missile too well yeah no she gets a rocket launcher yeah and and does it but earlier there's a there's an earlier bit in the episode where the the military like shows up with some weapons and originally what I read was originally the doctor was supposed to grab the the rocket launcher and take out the Dalek and Sylvester McCoy was like I don't think that's a very doctor like thing to do the doctor doesn't seem like he would use heavy military weapons against a lone Dalek. It just, you know. And so they were like, but it does seem like a very ace thing to do. Like, yeah, and, oh, and oh, look, here's this big explosive device. What does it do? Let me shoot it. The the girl that makes explosives in her spare time. Yeah. Um, and I, so like the, I like the they, horrified look McCoy gives Sophia as in that scene. It's like, what did you do? I aimed for the eye stock. <laughs> yeah, because because at the beginning of the the episode, when the military first encounters the the Dalek, they're just kind of aiming center mass as you do, and 
he tells them aim for the eye stalk. It's it's the weak point. And so when Ace finally gets a chance to attack one of one of them, she just aims for the eye stalk and absolutely blows the thing sky high. Uh and when she has the baseball bat too, she distracts it with a couple of shots behind its back and when it turns, she aims for the eye stalk. Bashes and, that thing right out. And bashes it, and then, of course, it can't see her, and then she just keeps wailing on it until it explodes. Um, but my other favorite part is that the, the scientist woman that they've been working with, who we haven't really uh, discussed yet, the uh, Professor Rachel there, um, she grabs Ace's bat when Ace drops it to grab the rocket launcher and when the the um, head cap of the Dalek pops off she grabs it and she just starts like pummeling it using like she just turns the Dalek into like a mortar and pestle situation using the bat <laughs> Well, the Dalek, Which apparently, apparently the Dalek is, like, still alive because it's choking the doctor. Yeah, and so, yeah, it uses its tentacles to choke the doctor, and so she grabs the bat, and she just starts, like, grinding <laughs> the actual organic Dalek inside, and eventually, like, once, the, once it frees the doctor, the doctor looks at her, and she's just, like, going to town on this thing, and he goes, like, I think it's dead now. (laughs) 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 Which I love, because she's just turning it into absolute green goo inside this thing. I was like, yeah, I'm like, she's making Dalek guacamole inside that armor. (laughs) Get the woman some toast. (laughs) Like, 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 I mean... the the references to the past, especially especially uh, in w- where where the doctor and Ace, you know, just hijack one of the army vans, and the doctor just te- basically tells every Dalek story that's happened up to this point. Yeah, they, they my favorite my favorite but, bit of that scene is uh, where he's he's talking to Ace. And he's like, can you drive? And then she's having trouble driving the car. He's trying to tell her directions and she's missing various turns and stuff. And she's like, well, if you want to drive. And then there's this hilarious cut where they switch places. Yeah, they go through a tunnel and when they come out, they're on the other side. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the doctor can drive. He drove Bessie as a third. Oh, yeah. So the doctor can drive. He just wanted to see if Ace could, and n- n- not very well. She's she's a, she's supposed to be eighteen, so she hasn't been driving that long, if at all. Well, the thing is that she was capable of driving. I mean, remember that was a bit of an older car, mm-hmm. and also it's a military vehicle, so it drives a bit differently. I do like how the, the doctor was telling Ace to pull the choke, and she's like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm not choking. <laughs> yeah. But what she was unable to do was 
follow his instructions and listen to his story at the same time. Like it was, it was a bit of too much information at once, you know? Yeah. Yes. There are people who are like that when they drive, they could go concentrate on the road. Don't talk, no radio. I just need to focus on the road. Yeah. The, the thing about them coming into contact with the military is that when he runs into the guy that's the head of the military unit, there's a couple of funny bits because he runs into the captain or whatever. And he, he says, oh, you must be with the military. And the guy goes, how did you know? And the guy's standing there in like a full military uniform surrounded by other military guys at a military checkpoint. And the doctor goes like, oh, I just use my wonderful powers of deduction or something. And the guy's like, yes, yes, quite. You know, like, <laughs> and I do love how he refers to the guy as brigadier. That's another yeah, reference he, to classic who. Yeah, he, he calls the he calls the captain brigadier. And I was like, oh, you know, he's still he's still thinking of the brig. Oh, Lethbridge Stewart is alive. He's much younger in this real in this time period. He wouldn't be a brigadier yet. Yeah, but I mean, for our do for our doctor at this time, that's, you know, in the past for we don't know how long for him, you know. At least since the the fifth, yeah, because the sixth doctor never interacted with the brig. But also, you know, we know that we're not seeing every moment of the doctor's life. Mm -hmm. You know, so we don't know. You know, for the doctor, it could have been hundreds of years in his own timeline since he's seen the brigadier. Now that you um, see hundreds of years, we have another hiccup of the doctor's age. Because the Doctor's age has never been consistent in the classic series. And he, he, he does mention that he has 900 years of experience fighting Daleks. Yeah. Again, the, the Doctor Who has never been consistent on the age of the Doctor. They tried it with the reboot series. But when it comes to the classic series, it's just, uh, just throw out a random number. He's an old alien. <laughs> The the thing is, is that the the way they would always kind of hint at the Doctor's age that I kind of liked in the classic series would be when they would show him writing in his diary, and the diary would progressively be larger and larger. It would be like a hundred-year diary, and then it would be like a 500-year diary, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it would be, you know... Um, so I, I always liked that recurring gag as the, the iterations, you know, it was like, you would see like the first doctor writing in a hundred year diary. And then like the third doctor would be writing in a 500 year diary and, you know, so I, uh, but I, I like that seventh doctor just says like 900 years, you know, like it's a it's a kind of roundish number that makes him sound impossibly old, you know. Mm -hmm. Even I mean, 
the pre- the last instance of the Doctor's age, I believe it was the Seventh Doctor's first episode where he said he was 953 years old. So, again, the Doctor's age has never been consistent. And if you really want, and considering, again, he has lived a lot longer than he's told people, and he just throws out random numbers whenever he feels like it. Yeah, and then I think by the time we get to the ninth or tenth Doctor, they pulled back on the number a bit. They actually, they actually tried to be consistent with the Doctor's age. And they tried. That's all I can say that they tried. Oh, I'm every season they added one number to his age. Oh, I'm 900 years old. I'm 901. I'm 902. I'm 1,000. I'm 2,000. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then eventually they gave up on that because they had episodes where, like, the Doctor was trapped in a time loop for 500 years or something, yeah. you know, yeah. like. Um, but I do, I I always kind of like it better when the Doctor is just like, I'm 11 billion years old. What are you giving me lip for? You know, and you're like, yeah. eh, who cares? You know? Because humans do that all the time, you know? Yeah. It's like, shut up, I've got socks older than you, you know? Like, yeah. You probably don't, but it's just a thing you say. I just always kind of figured Time Lords were like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Is it exactly 900 years you've been fighting the Daleks? Maybe, maybe not, you know? It's just a long span of time, you know? I want to put... One thing here that that they do in in the episodes here, both for the Imperial Dalek and the child Dalek computer, they both use Davros's voice. And granted, the first time they do it is a misdirect because they're using Terry Malloy as Davros and using the Davros voice. They don't credit him, but we'll get to that. For the voice of the renegade Dalek leader. And then there's the fake out when the Dalek, when that leader turns around and lifts up the helmet and it's the little girl. And as the voice fades from Davros's voice to the little girl's voice. It was a nice fake out. Granted, I, 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 I had already seen this previously, but I do. I always love that fake out. Yeah, I, I like the way that they do the fade from the Dalek voice to her voice. It's a really nice vocal effect. And what I said, they they try to keep Davros being in this story a secret, so they credited the Emperor Dalek under a pseudonym. And then wait, when in the fourth episode, when we finally get the reveal that it's Davros, then Terry Malloy is properly credited. So they really wanted to make sure you did not know. So the, the fact that they went so far as to not properly credit the actor... Just so they can say, oh, people are going to read these credits. Oh, they're going to see Terry Malloy's name. Oh, that's going to ruin the thing that this says that this is, this is Davros. Better give him a different name. Better credit him under a different name. Yeah, by, th- by the time they they made this, they already knew they had, you know. The hardcores. <laughs> the, the hardcore fans by this point. You know, if this had been like, you know. 
1970 or something, they probably wouldn't care. <laughs> like <laughs> the 60s, you know, the, yeah. the 60s, the 60s black and white era where every story was recycling the same six or seven actors. Yeah, no, they would they would not have even bothered. Yeah, but there is that great scene where they were uh, as, as, as as we've mentioned. There's that scene where the doctor, where Ace kind of wants some clarification, and she, you know, justifiably, she's kind of she doesn't want to be held in the dark that the doctor is coming up with these plans and schemes. Like, what is going on? Tell me what's what what's what are we what what are we fighting for? What is so important that we need to be here? And we get the doctor sitting ace down in the school and he goes through this this long speech, like we said, you know, what the hand of Omega is, that it's not a literal hand because time lords are very full of themselves, which they are. And going through it against the 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 first slip up is like we we never had problem oh the problems we had with the prototype we I mean they the first hint of him being a lot older than he says he is but that whole exchange of the doctor telling the story of the hand of Omega to Ace and it's like this you know this is essentially the start of their relationship they had only been in one adventure previously in the previous episode so it's nice to have that moment especially after the doctor kind of was very cold towards Ace in the in the diner scene like you know doctor uh, professor what's going on i'm concentrating and she's yeah. just all right whatever you do you i'm going to go talk to the cute soldier boy i got a crush on there are certain things that i love uh just to change the subject a little bit mm-hmm. Because it, it hit me. But there are certain things I love when watching low-budget sci-fi. And one of my favorite things is the Renegade Dalek time controller. The the thing that helps them go through time it's is just... It's just one of those cheap plasma smart balls. Yeah. <laughs> And then the I just girl. love thinking about what Daleks would do if you just like let them run free in a Spencer's gift. <laughs> All of these evil weapons. The doctor. This must be where the doctor gets his weapons. <laughs> yeah, it's just that one little part of Spencer's gifts is in the back where they have all the lava lamps and the weird like plasma lights and stuff. <laughs> And it's just the little girl playing with it, saying, all right, the the, the time controller has been activated. Yeah, and you kind of halfway expect her hair to stand up on it because of the static or whatever. Like, oh, yes, it is fully charged now. (laughs) I guess that's why her hair was always, like, slicked down in that one. Like, every time she had to touch that thing, it just, like flew up and went wild because of the static charge. <laughs> I loved that when I saw that that was like the, you know, it's Sylvester McCoy is touching it in like this, like really reverent, important manner. Like, wait, let me see if I can disable this. And I'm like, just unplug it, dude. <laughs> 
and 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 that leads to to the the um Radcliffe's little moment here because because Mike goes to tries to see Radcliffe after you know everything that's gone down after Mike has been outed as working supposedly unwittingly working with the Daleks he goes to find Radcliffe and sees that Radcliffe is now prisoner with the Daleks even though he's been working with them but whatever and their big plan is and they see the the time controller and they're you know you know what we could do with that kid yeah we could stop the Daleks you're thinking too small we can do whatever we want well you know because it's a time controller they can go through time this is the guy that said the wrong side won World War Two. This is like the one guy that, you know how like everybody's like, what would you do with time travel? Well, I'd go back and kill Hitler. He's like, I'd go back and make sure that Hitler wasn't killed. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll save Hitler. <laughs> yeah, I'd go back and save Hitler. My Fuhrer, yeah. put the gun down, my Fuhrer, put the gun down. <laughs> the only good thing Hitler ever did was he is the guy that killed Hitler. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the thing is, though, is that I I really thought it was interesting that the first kind of lead up to what we would eventually get in the reboot series, which was the idea of the time war. Yeah, this is another being one. the doctor's primary motivation. Yeah, this is another episode that Russell T. Davies considers to be a one of the early points of the time war and the destruction of Scaro. Yeah. Cause like I said, even though it comes out of nowhere for the audience. That is the doctor's final plan. The, the Daleks want the Hand of Omega because they want the time travel. The um well, Daleks and the already... power and the power that goes with it, you know. Yeah, the Daleks, they they say uh I, I skipped that part, but when the Dal when the doctor is talking about the, what the Hand of Omega can do. Uh, Ace does mention that Daleks already know how to time travel, but the do but Doctor says that their method is very crude and and unrefined. With the Hand of Omega, they can refine their time travel capabilities, maybe going directly where they need to versus a general vicinity of where they need to. Yeah, I mean we've the we've talked we've talked about this before with other Dalek time machines, where. Uh, Barbara and Ian, they used the Dalek time machine to go home, and they were, like, five years later. Yeah. So, the Dalek time machine is not perfect. And with the Hand of Omega, they could perfect it. Also, the power that a supernova could give them in terms of weaponry and whatnot. Yeah, and that's the thing that's kept from the audience, is we just know it has something to do with time travel. So, we're thinking, like, okay, the, the Daleks want to use it to like send an army to the correct point in time where the enemy is weakest and do like a sudden surprise strike or something, which is a terrifying weapon on its own. But the doctor shows us the true, horrific, terrifying power 
that the Daleks could use if they knew how to do it correctly. Yeah. Which is, he's just standing there and he's like, all right, back off, Davros. Like, you, you don't want to mess with this. You know? You you have effed around. You are about to find out. <laughs> like, <laughs> and Davros is like, no, I like effing around. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? We are going to, we are going to, yeah, his, his thing is, we're, we are going to take Scaro's son and make it a, a battery of unlimited power. Yeah, I'm going I'm going to take your your home planet out of the equation and I'm going to use your son to power my time machine indefinitely. Thank you and good night. Also, the backlash of what I am going to do in wiping out your home planet and you know, the sun it orbits is going to you know, boomerang effect, come back on you and destroy your ship. And it works so well that Davros actually begs the Doctor to have pity on him. I pity for you. That is a 10th Doctor moment, if there ever was one. Yeah, that is shades of who he will become after the Time War, which is really terrifying. That, you know, it shows the coldness of the Doctor, the the inhuman side of the Doctor that they tried to put through with Colin Baker, and they really get it done with, with, with McCoy. Which is impressive, because he's one of the most comedic Doctors, like you said. He's mm. the pratfall guy. It is weird and- seeing how actors that thrive in comedy do so well in drama um to be a little topical the flash movie came out bringing back michael keaton as batman when that first happened the 89 batman movie people were very critical of michael keaton because he was a comedy guy they couldn't see a comedy guy being batman and now he is considered one of the greatest actors who have ever played that character Likewise, you have Sylvester McCoy, who started out as a clown, literal clown, and is considered the master manipulator doctor. Yeah, I mean, it is comparatively very easy to make someone cry. It is very difficult to make someone laugh. Mm. And if you can consistently master the ability to make someone laugh especially if you can do it in a genuinely kind way you are almost certainly skilled enough to be able to do the opposite you are you are almost certainly uh, uh going to be good at the dramatic end of it having seen up close what it takes the the actual precision it takes to get the timing of comedy down you know my my first directing experience was one of the more demanding comedic 
plays out there. You know, it's it's kind of infamous for for what it takes in in the the timing and and such, and knowing how hard the actors had to rehearse on that and everything, and having seen those same actors later do for other people dramatic roles. I was like, yeah, if they were willing to work that hard on what is seemingly a piece of fluff, but actually very biting satire that takes like very consistent, precise timing to deliver, you know, the fact that they can stand there and, and deliver a much looser, you know, dramatic bit was never a surprise to me. So, yeah. And that, that, you know, like, it's another bit of the, the, the coldness of the doctor is that as, as Davros is doing his big villain victory speech, we will be the rulers of time. We will be the rulers of the universe. And essentially the seventh doctor is going, blah, 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 rulers of time, rulers of the universe, unlimited power, unlimited rice pudding. I love that line. <laughs> yeah. You know what's best, the best thing about that line, though, Mm -hmm. is that bigots and fascists and stuff, they always think they're coming up with something new. Like, when, when they're telling you their big master plan, they always think that they are telling you the biggest groundbreaking thing you have ever heard. And every single time, it's always just recycled nonsense that you have heard before. It's never anything new and inventive. It's just the same recycled nonsense from a generation before, a decade before, a whatever, mm-hmm. that to them is like oh a light bulb just went off in my head i can use this this will justify my hate but to anybody who's like yeah we thought of that before and we've already discounted it the world has moved on and so the fact that the doctor is like yes dude i have heard this song and dance before from you (laughs) yeah from you specifically but also from every other two-bit wannabe dictator in the history of the universe because you are all so boringly and tediously the exact same person. Yep. Every racist on the planet is the exact same person. Yeah. Not an original thought in their head. Every, every little tin pot dictator is the exact same person. Every fascist is a cookie cutter of every other fascist. And they all think they're telling you their new brilliant thought that they just thought up in their own unique special snowflake brain. And they do not understand how absolutely mind-numbingly boring they are. And I love that bit from the doctor of like, you are absolutely the most boring person in the universe, Davros. I have no sympathy for you. And also you are making me yawn. <laughs> like, 
yeah, before we wrap up, I want to talk about one scene. For two reasons. The first reason is the cameo that this episode is known for in retrospect. Because if you're an American viewer, you may not know this actor in 1988, but a few years from now, you will know Joseph Marcel because he would go on to play Jeffrey the Butler and the Fresh Prince. Yeah. Because <laughs> he plays the night shift runner of the cafe that all of the soldiers are eating at. So there's this cafe in town, there's this white guy that runs it during the day, and there is Joseph Marcel's character that runs it at night, and it's empty. A nice little, um, uh, keep on going with the with the racial aspect of it, of it's, op it's always busy in the day because a white man is behind the counter, it is empty at night because a black man is at, is at the counter. But the doctor goes in, he wants a cup of tea to kind of clear his head. And they have this great conversation. Is that, you know, the he the 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 guy says, you know, would you like any milk or sugar in your tea? And he has this great moment. It's like, would that change anything? The flavor, like besides my taste buds. Would it change the fact that I'm drinking tea? Would it change anything functionally in my life? Other than what I'm tasting. Well no it won't. And he goes into this big moment. It's it's sort of. A precursor to what the doctor. Would become later on. Having these thoughts of what if they had the power. To. Uh, manipulate the taste buds. Of everyone in the world. To have the same. To enjoy the same flavors. Have the same thing. And having this moment of. He travels through time. And wonders if it's even worth it. And what can one change do? And I love that whole scene. I'm not doing that scene justice. I am not. But yeah, I mean, the, the thing about it, though, is that when he asks about the sugar, the, the kind of point is that that man, that black man, would not be physically where he is at that moment had English people not wanted cane sugar in their tea. They can get honey for their tea because there are bees in England. If they had been satisfied with honey, they could have harvested honey themselves and used it to sweeten their tea. But somebody brought over cane sugar at one point and they said, we prefer the cane sugar. And that little ripple was one of the things that caused part of, I mean, not solely, of course, you know, but that little thing. And he says, my grandfather was a cane cutter okay which means that his grandfather was enslaved to go to a caribbean island or perhaps somewhere in the southern u.s because we have cane plantations around here okay 
and cut cane crop and boil cane to make cane sugar to be shipped back to England to sweeten tea and baked goods and other things. And that led to this man who has a very thick Caribbean accent to end up being an immigrant or one of his, you know, parents or grandparents or something, you know, someone in his family line ending up being forcibly brought or immigrating to England to be working at that particular restaurant to have that particular conversation with the doctor. The English taste for sugar from sugar cane. That tiny little ripple. And he says, if not for sugar, I would be an African right now. Not an Englishman of Caribbean heritage. And it's a great scene. It's a beautiful scene. And it has the doctor thinking about those ripple effects. That something as tiny as an Englishman wants sugar in his tea. Means that black man is standing in a shop to have that conversation in the 1960s. It, it's it's really interesting when you think about it in the in the context of the time war, yeah. because the doctor is going to make a decision, and in fact that's the last line of the episode, because the ace asked the doctor like, did we do a good thing here, you know, because Mike ends up dying, you know that little girl is traumatized for life Mm -hmm. especially according to the side media she is absolutely not okay after that you know um they the doctor has committed a genocide you know he blew up an Um, entire planet yeah as far as the classic series is concerned that's the last time we ever see the daleks yeah, this is the until last the reboot. The Daleks are dead. The Doctor just wiped out the Daleks. They get better. They always get better. Yeah, but side, I mean, side media has shown that they that uh, no, not side media. The actual television show. It would take us all the way to the twelfth Doctor era for confirmation from Davros that they simply reconstructed their planet. Yeah, but but I mean. We wouldn't, as a fan base, you know, and as far as television canonicity, Mm -hmm. it would not be until Christopher Eccleston appeared on television and said, I am the last of the Time Lords. There was a war and both sides died. And what he assumed was... we would find out the fallout. Mm -hmm. And what he was, uh, what he assumed was the last Dalek. Yeah, um, but as far as the the series is concerned, this is the moment the Daleks died, with the exception of there is a teaser. They left it open of like Davros is heading toward an escape pod. 
you know, so we get that little teaser of like maybe Devers is still alive. Had the series continued, they would have gone that direction. You know, they would. It can't get. They can get away from the Daleks, but the show was canceled before they could get to that point. Well, I think it was because the Daleks are not owned by the BBC. Mm. I mean, they are now, I think. The I Terry think Nation estate, have, you know, the Terry Nation estate yeah, the, still gets credit. They still have to pay off think, the estate I think the BBC, that. I think the BBC now does have, like, official rights to the Daleks as long as they continue to credit Terry Nation as the creator. But at the time... Terry Nation still had control over the Daleks if he wanted to create something using Daleks. Mm. Um, so I think that that's why they left that. They had to leave that bit open that like, but probably Davros is still alive. But as far as the series was concerned, all Daleks are dead except for maybe that Davros guy. Who's only, I mean, he was like a humanoid. He he was not like a traditional Dalek in that sense, you know? So he could have maybe created more, but yeah, okay. So but as far as we're concerned, the planet of Scarrow is no more until the movie. But we'll get to that next month. Yeah. The The thing, though, is that this is this is a really I mean it's it is considered by pretty much everybody to be one of the best episodes of the classic series, yeah. Classic series, yeah. Um and I I think it maintains that, of course. Um I I love this canon Dalek. We never got a chance to talk about the canon Dalek. I do love that canon Dalek. Yeah, that's good. And I love that he's like all rusted up. While all of the Imperial Daleks are all pristine, white, shiny, and new. And, like, the canon Dalek is all dirty. Like, yeah. you're, you're, you're literally the, 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 the first line of defense. And you're just... You, you get busted up, it's fine. But, uh, yeah, but I do love that, that canon Dalek. And I wish they would kind of reuse that design. Or at least update that design for something else. Yeah, there's... There's no reason that the the tank thing surrounding the Daleks always has to be the pepper pot design. The egg, uh, you know? the, the egg whisk and the and the plunger. Yeah. I I will say that a lot of the a lot of the younger fans, you know, because there was always the joke about and that had come up over the years of like, I don't understand why Daleks are so scary. Just run up the stairs. And so that moment in the first Dalek episode with uh, Christopher Eccleston, where the Dalek, you know, they run up the stairs and Christopher Eccleston goes like, ha, what you going to do now? Stairs. And the Dalek goes, elevate and rises up the stairs. And a lot of people were like, well, the show has gotten around that. But the Daleks are doing that in this episode, and yeah, a lot of people had just forgotten about it. And yeah, that's the cliffhanger of the first episode. They're going after yeah. the Doctor, and as the Headmaster had locked him in that in that room, as the Imperial Dalek is just rising up to freaking kill him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they already had that that levitation, you know, bit going 
uh, in the classic uh, series. Apparently, that's one of the things that had this budget blow up because they had to build a special rig to lift the Dalek prop for that scene. They probably could have used some rotoscoping, some green screen or blue screen to make that cheaper. But it looks better with the with, with this way, honestly. Yeah. Even even if it did balloon the budget. One more thing before we get because I I it, it I've seen this episode quite a number of times, and this is the first time I've noticed something. The end of the episode where they're doing the the funeral for Mike, and you get the close up of Ace. Ace has Batman earrings. She has. I didn't notice that. It's the '60s Adam West Batman. Granted, it's a few years too early, but Batman is still a relative character in the com. Is you know, Batman comics exist, so it's like uh, Ace is a freaking nerd. (laughs) Well, yeah, she's cool. I mean, granted, she has the. Why would she be a nerd? The yeah, she has the the yeah. On one hand, she has the NASA patches on her on her coat. But to have her with, at least in that one scene, she had, like, Batman earrings. And it's like, that is formal attire for her to go to a funeral because it's Ace. Yeah. But as for what happened afterwards, again, as we said, the show would get canceled the following year. And we did not get Doctor Who on... We did not have a regular presence of Doctor Who on television until the reboot series. There were other projects, and we'll get to those other projects uh, next time. We'll kind of fastball all of them. But this leaves a something big wide open is what happened to the Doctor? What happened to Ace? As I've said, we have seen Ace return. She returned last year. In the power of the Doctor. We have had Ace mentioned in the Sarah Jane Adventures. Using her real name Dorothy. As she's the head of a charitable Earth. She's become a humanitarian. Because yeah Ace would be. Ace would run a charity that would help people. That's That sounds about right for her. But as for what this show, if had the show continued past season 26, there was a plan for Ace. We would have said goodbye to Ace in that season. And the plan was for Ace to go to the Time Lord Academy to become a Time Lord. Which is very interesting in having a human become a Time Lord. As uh, they felt that the, that her youthful, rebellious nature would be a nice kick in the pants for the, for the curmudgeon Time Lords and their fuddy-duddy ways. I always wonder how that would work, because there's been throwing out dates of how long the Doctor wasn't in the Academy. We would see in the reboot series how the Master was in there since he was eight years old and there has been on and off uh ages that the doctor may have left the time lord academy when he was 90 years old or something like that so it's really interesting to see how a human lifetime would have worked attending the time lord academy yeah i 
I think it would have been really interesting for her to have gone away and then sort of shown up in the the new series. Can you imagine (laughs) David Tennant and then he gets Ace, Romana, and Leela, and they're all on Gallifrey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they hadn't absolutely wiped out all the Time Lords except the Master. Yeah, and, 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 and external media has gone into it of her as a student at the Academy, the uh, Big Finish Time War Gallifrey series even has Ace fighting in the Time War that that itself is is ace in the time war i'm just going to throw that out that that would have been awesome it the, the the doctor would have hated it but the idea of ace in the time war romana in the time war leela in the time war susan in the time war just putting that out there. Grant, and yes, I'm aware they those have all been covered in the audio adventures. I'm just saying it out there for people who may not know. But yeah. just the, the idea of a potential, if they had done that in the modern series of, like, can you imagine if they had done the 50th anniversary special? You got Tenet, you got Matt Smith, you got... Uh, John Hurt, and then there's Ace and Romana and Leela and Susan. I I really I keep waiting for like the Ronnie to come back or or something. You know, there's some, I, I've heard there's some legal issues surrounding the Ronnie since the uh, owners of the character has passed on, but they left no estate, so mm. the uh, the ownership of the character is unknown. That's weird. I kind of thought after having, you know, the, the whole thing with the, the Daleks or whatever, that the BBC would have been smart enough to kind of keep control of all who, characters created. Who would they, as I said, the creators of the Ronnie left no estate. Who do they talk to to get that right? No, I mean that that they would have probably put it in the contract for everyone who worked for them after Terry Nation. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't. And, uh, Apparently, uh, they didn't. No, I mean up until the end of the classic series, if you created a character for for Doctor Who, you own that character, except everyone except the Doctor and the TARDIS. Wow. So, like, if you they wanted if. I mean, uh, after the fil- after the, the the series ended, there were s- several uh, direct-to-video movies made with several of the monsters. Uh, Autons and Zygons got movies. The Yetis got movies. There were movies that featured uh, Mel and the Brigadier and Sarah Jane and all these other characters. All they did was pay, you know, the fees to the writers that that created them, and they got to use them. So yeah. <laughs> But, oh, that but, sounds that sounds like England had a good system once upon a time. You know, it just you would, could do a sort of slight side Doctor Who episode. You just couldn't get the rights to the Doctor. But as for Ace herself, um, what we know in the canon, I'm going by what has been in, explained in the canon, as in what has been explained in the show. 
that at some point during their adventures, the doctor, the seventh doctor and Ace had a falling out, a very bad falling out, which led to Ace going back to Earth. She sets up her charity. And then the next time she sees the doctor, oh, doctor's woman now. And and I, it, you know, to kind of round about that, to, to kind of go forward a bit, that scene with her and Sylvester, with Sophie and Sylvester McCoy in the power of the doctor, Ace getting her closure that she never got with her doctor. And I did like that. But um, Sophie Aldred does have her own explanation of what happened. Last year, she released a book called At Childhood's End, which tells her version of events uh, of what happened to Ace. And uh, I I have not read it. I have read some summaries. But uh, if you're curious, uh, see if you can find it. Sophie Aldred at Childhood's End, if you're curious of how the actress herself feels uh, how the character would have been written off. And after the series ended, really the only new Doctor Who many had for decades were the novels. Virgin Books, The New Adventures, had their own adventures. You know, they they had their own write-off of Ace and new companions coming in. And so, like, there's so many different uh, alternate paths for Ace because we never really got to see it on TV. Pick your own and go with it. Whatever makes you feel happy. Whatever, whatever works for you. Into the Ace verse, where <laughs> she's a, in, we have Time Lord Ace and Time Patroller Ace and Charitable Ace and Ace that got married and Ace that didn't get married and. Young Ace and old woman Ace and yeah. <laughs> I, I like when that. there are options. Multiple choice endings for Ace. So I think that's all we can say about Remembrance of the Daleks and the Seventh Doctor era and the classic series as a whole. Next month when we talk about Doctor Who, we'll be talking about the Eighth Doctor, Paul McGann. Since my co-host will not let us use an audio adventure, we are going to be talking about the TV movie. Spoiling hey, I'm it not looking for I'm not looking forward to it any more than you are. But yeah, we 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 you know he only had one televised adventure. Well, technically one and five minutes. <laughs> But we have to go with what is available in a visual medium. So next month, Ace Doctor, Paul McGann, TV movie. Get ready for that. (laughs) But as for next week's episode, it is going to be our 4th of July episode. It'll be Independence Day. So we will celebrate our Independence Day because it's a Fox movie, which means Disney owns it. So, yes, welcome to Earth. We're going to be talking about Independence Day. You want to say Independence Day a few more times? I, I, it's going to lose all meaning at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so come back next week for the Will Smith movie blockbuster thing (laughs) and we'll talk to you all next time
Bye. <laughs> Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. Podcasts are fun. But there's work to be done. We encourage you to get involved. Here are some organizations we support. The American Civil Liberties Union fights for the constitutional rights of all Americans. Find them at aclu.org. The National Network of Abortion Funds helps people find access to safe abortion services. Their site is abortionfunds.org. The Trevor Project provides a 24-7 crisis helpline for LGBTQ youth and education services for schools on LGBTQ issues. They can be found at thetrevorproject.org. Or find a way to help in your area. Is that uh, good, or do, you, or do you want to do a third round? I think we can do, a, do, do that, and you can piece it together from the two. All right, that sounds good. Let's let's stop the recording.